0: Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley, a co-founder and publisher of Women's Agenda. My guests today are Dr. Jennifer Robinson and Kana Yoshida for a discussion asking how many women will continue to be failed by the legal system. Thank you for listening. Today's discussion is all about exposing how the law silences women, not just in Australia, but all over the world. And it comes thanks to two London-based barristers, Jennifer Robinson and Kana Yoshida. Together, they have co-authored the game-changing and essential book, How Many More Women? So it explores the legal response to the Me Too movement, looking at how women are breaking through the cultural barriers on speaking out about gender-based violence. But as more women are feeling empowered to speak, more women are also hitting up against a new form of silencing. And that is the spike in legal actions against women and the media that follows the spike in survivors telling their stories. The book explains how the law is being wielded in Australia and across the world to reinforce the status quo of silence that existed before MeToo. In this conversation, we discuss the playbook that is used by rich and powerful men to silence women, how some of the issues that may be preventing Australian women being heard or coming forward now in 2022 are actually common also across the world. We also discuss gendered censorship, the hidden gender of the law, and the steps that can be taken to free her speech. Jen also shares more on her experiences representing Amber Heard in the defamation case that Johnny Depp took against his ex-wife in the Sun newspaper in London, where a judge ruled in 2020 that he had found Johnny Depp had assaulted Amber Heard on a dozen separate occasions. It was a very different outcome to the defamation trial that finished up in June this year in the United States. So this discussion also occurred just prior to the jury involved in the trial of Bruce Lerman, that would be the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins, before that jury was discharged last week without delivering a verdict. So we do not discuss this trial in any detail. And one thing you will note on picking up the book is a number of sections that are redacted due to the potential for the publication to coincide with the date of this criminal trial. The book actually happens to have a QR code that can be used to access those redacted pages. However, with a new trial expected to take place next year, it could be a long wait ahead. Now let's meet Jen and Kana. Hi, I'm Kena Yoshida.
1: I'm a barrister qualified in the UK and Ireland. And right now I work at the Centre for Reproductive Rights.
2: And my name's Jen Robinson. I'm an Australian barrister at Dowdy Street Chambers in London. Uh, practicing out of London on cases internationally and work with women journalists and frontline services organizations and reporting these stories.
0: Great. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us here on Women's Agenda. Thank you also for writing the book. I actually just received my copy today sadly, so I haven't had as much time with it as I'd like. But any of our readers and audience I know will be familiar with a lot of the cases and a lot of the topics and issues that you do explore throughout the book and will find a lot of value and interest in it. But what I have seen is that it is an excellent guide to gendered censorship to how the law is used as a weapon to further compound on the violence and trauma women and girls have experienced and There is a call to action in there as well and also quite a useful, I guess I might call it almost like a toolkit or support for survivors out there to learn a little bit more about what goes on. So my first question is just to hear from both of you. Uh, Well, first of all, how you came to actually come together to write this book, where you first met, the relationship that you get to know each other, how you became friends friends or colleagues or what it was when you started working with each other, perhaps even what you found in each other at that time. So I don't know, Jen, if you want to start or where you'd start with that.
2: I'm happy to. So Kana and I are colleagues from Daddy Street Chambers, so we met because we were both uh, junior barristers at Daddy Street, and we really came together around this subject when we worked together on the case that opens the book, The Stocker and Stocker Case in the United Kingdom. It's a case in which a woman suffered a documented incident of domestic violence. The police came to her house and found that she had red marks around her throat. Uh, her, by then, ex-husband had violently grabbed her around the throat and the police saw red marks on her neck. Um, Anyway, sometime later she was posting on Facebook to his new partner warning her about the history of violence that she had suffered, and she wrote the words, he tried to strangle me. And he then sued her for defamation because his new partner and some of her friends and family had seen the post, and he won, even though she had that police evidence. And it was because the judge made a ruling that basically the technical definition of strangulation means that you did it with an intent to kill, and he found that his his intention was to silence her, not to kill her. So she lost her case. And we were both so outraged by that, we decided to work together to try to intervene in the case. And we did for Liberty, a British human rights organisation. But the Supreme Court didn't hear us. And What we were seeing through our own practices and and our conversations about this is that we were angry that the courts weren't properly recognising women's right to free speech and the other rights that come into play, our right to equality, our right to live free from violence. And so really that's where the book came from. We decided to make all the arguments that we would have made had the Supreme Court let us in.
0: (laughs) And that was back in 2012. So 10 years ago. Obviously, so much has changed since then. We've had the Me Too movement. Did you think during that time that some of these things would start to be resolved, that things might look different on the other side of this, that we could be opening up to a very different world?
1: Well I think when we first applied to intervene it was probably 2017 sorry okay um, yeah sorry rather than rather than 2012 yeah by that time in our practices both as media lawyers and human rights lawyers and and working on cases of violence against women we, we were seeing this come across our desk before me too and then in a much more increased manner post me too, as well, and I think it's it's just steadily increased. and And by the time you know we were writing and finishing our book, I think there were so many cases it was difficult to narrow down which which cases that we were going to focus on, um, and obviously that highly mediatized uh, trial and death and herit has has brought it to international attention
0: yeah and i mean do you see a trend in terms of slowing down in women speaking up can you see that reflected in some of these high profile cases
2: i think the trend that we have identified in the book is that there is an avalanche of legal cases being in civil lit- litigation civil cases being brought against women and journalists and frontline services organizations who are and, and friends and family who are speaking in support of of a friend or a colleague or a family member who's who suffered gender-based violence. Um, so that's certainly a trend that we're seeing. And it's not a trend that is country-specific. It crosses geography. It crosses cultures. It crosses language. So we cover cases from Japan, from Uganda, from South Africa, from India, from Australia, from the United Kingdom, from the United States. And what we're seeing is the same thing play out in all of these different jurisdictions, despite the differences in law and culture, the same sexist tropes being rolled out in these cases, male-centric myths about gender-based violence to deny women justice. And so I think that trend is certainly there. Anecdotally, what I can say since the Depp case in the United States is that we're hearing from, and I'm certainly hearing from colleagues saying that uh, the domestic violence victims that they represent are now scared to come forward with their complaints um, are being threatened by... Their perpetrators saying, look, if you come forward, don't be an Amber, no one's going to believe you. Don't speak out. And women are, you know, choosing not to come forward because of what they saw in that case and the way she was treated. And so for me and for Amber personally, that's devastating, which is, and, you know, we were already writing the book. We were working on this book long before the Depp case came across my desk, and I'm happy to explain my role in that case in the United Kingdom, where Depp was found to have been violent towards Amber on 12 separate occasions. But we were writing the book anyway. And then, of course, that case became so high profile and so problematic that we cover it in the book. Mm.
0: I might get to that in just a moment, but I wanted to ask about all these different countries because I feel that, and and maybe it was naive to think this, and obviously um, the the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial presented something very different, but I I think in Australia, we can look at our own defamation laws and see how uh, difficult they are to get around, and we've seen some really high-profile cases here, obviously, particularly following the Me Too movement particularly, and you know, I was sort of thinking that it was a real problem here in Australia. And that was one of the surprising facets of um, what I've been through in the book is to see that there is this thread. And I wanted to start there to kind of ask for a very, and I appreciate this is going to be quite general, but it's sort of for our audience, just to get a bit more of an understanding of what you could both share in terms of describing, I mean, how exactly is the law used by rich and powerful men? to silence women? Like how would you explain that to people? Because we see the cases, but how is it actually being used?
1: Well, I think we've got a chapter in the book called The Playbook um, and it's, you know, her guide to his playbook and that it sets all the different types of actions that a rich and powerful person could take in order to silence this type of speech. And obviously this is, the different actions are different in different jurisdictions, but broadly speaking, uh, there are injunctions, there are defamation actions, there are breach of confidence actions, contract cases, a whole web of cases really, that when a woman tries to speak out about her experience or with allegations that can be weaponized against her in order to silence her. and these words, gendered censorship and weaponized—you know—they these are not our words. These are the words of the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. This is something that the United Nations is recognizing as a global problem in trying to combat violence against women.
0: Free her speech. Those three words are they your words? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. They stand out to me. There's like particularly powerful, and I'm sure. I was sort of as I saw those three words, I was thinking, I'm sure there's a lot of advocates for free speech who would never even consider that aspect of it. But um, maybe you could offer an explanation of what that means by the what you mean by those three words.
2: Well, that's the the title of a chapter. Or actually maybe it isn't anymore, the book changed so much, but we talk about the need to free her speech because in our view, the way the law is currently drafted and being applied and interpreted by our courts is in a way that restricts women's right to freedom of expression. Uh, For example, when you look at a privacy case or a defamation case, the way the courts consider it is really her right to free speech balanced against his right to privacy or his right to protect his reputation What we're saying is that too much emphasis is being placed on privacy and reputation of men. In the global context of where we have a pandemic of violence against women, one in three women suffer violence, Uh, there is public interest in, in ensuring and protecting women's right to free speech. And so that balance, also in that balance, we ought to have our right to equality, our right to be free from gender-based violence. And if you put those important human rights into this balancing act, we need to be putting more emphasis on the right of women to be able to speak about this. Because our position is we cannot grapple with and deal with violence against women if we cannot speak about it. You can't deal with a problem you don't know you don't know exists if you know what I mean. So, so that's why we say it's a matter of public interest that women should, women's right to free speech should be protected and that the courts can free her speech by taking a different approach to the way we look at the law and apply the law.
0: That was going to be my next question because uh, I know that you also go through like, how are we going to figure this whole system out to make it work. But uh, so I know that you know the law was not created for women; it was created for men. We need different laws. Uh, we need also, I guess, uh, to be realistic about how quickly change can occur and and what that would look like. So what are some of the easy steps that could occur to free her speech?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, There's existing laws. So one of the points we make in the book is that we do have a public interest defence in Australia's defamation laws now. We have one in the UK in our Defamation Act that was introduced in 2013. And the courts are recognising in various cases around the world that women's right to be able to speak about their experience of gender-based violence in the medium of their choice, including on Twitter, including on social media, is a matter of public interest and that speech must be protected. So in those circumstances, her right to free speech is protected as against any damage to his reputation. Um, so I think that's one simple way that existing laws can be better utilised by lawyers and judges could be taking an approach to interpretation which protects women's right to be able to speak out in that way about their abuse. But then one of some of the other things we talked about is what well, we want to see more women in parliament on the bench in the courts so that women's lived experience of the law, which is what this book is about is better reflected in the in the way it's dealt with in court. Um, we want to see a discussion about more cost effective ways of being able to manage these cases so we talk about anti-slap legislation that could potentially be utilized to protect women from having to go to such huge expenses to defend these cases and so it's a cost effective way of having them chucked out early to say no this is a matter of free speech let her say what she needs to say.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we've both been inspired by law professors, people like Judge Hilary Charlesworth, who's an Australian judge now at the International Court of Justice. And she talks about the hidden gender of the law. And I think this is what we've tried to do in this book is to say, actually, media law has a hidden gender problem. And it, it takes uncovering that in order for judges to be able to see actually, you know, we have been weighing it up in this very narrow technical way and this is a broader issue and we need the judges also to understand that when it comes to free speech, it's also about the, a right to self-fulfillment, a right to be able to speak your truth.
0: Mm-hmm. I think my immediate thoughts for this conversation, it goes to uh, women who are making a very distinct decision to speak out and weighing up the costs and the, like the benefits and, and uh, the risks and things like that. But can I ask about social media and your experiences of, I mean, I imagine Nicholas Stocker, the Casey mentioned at the beginning of the book, I imagine she probably didn't know that was defamatory, what she said. That it probably wasn't an intended decision to go out there and defame someone. And I feel that that's the experience that I see across social media as well and certainly across our posts and when I see people interacting and things like that, that they might not might not necessarily know that what they are saying is defamatory. They may not understand the laws and could get caught out is there a huge pool that sort of falls into that category where they've sort of ended up here and being silenced with a very costly version of being silenced without actually realizing at all what they were doing? Absolutely.
2: One of the things we see in our own practice is that a lot of women come to us for advice once they're in the difficulty they're in because they didn't seek advice before speaking out. So I think it's really important for women to make informed decisions. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to write this book, so that we could advise more women than could ever come into our chambers to sit down with us about the kinds of risks that they face. And I think one of the sort of the key sort of moments for us as we were working on this book was sort of clarifying the issue for ourselves and that um, a lot of women don't understand that the moment you're raped or suffer any form of violence the law then regulates what you can say who you can say it to and when and there's legal risks at every turn and that's not to put people off we just want to we want to empower people by providing knowledge because that's this that's the first step for change by acknowledging the problem and identifying the problem and sharing information about the problem we can then start to
0: fix it Jen would you be able to actually touch on your work in that amber heard johnny depp trial in the uk and lead into the differences between the two because i think also people don't necessarily know about that second trial and much about it so it's certainly got a lot less attention so could you share something there
2: sure so um, i represented amber heard in respect of the defamation case that johnny depp took against the sun newspapers in london he filed that case back in 2017 or 2018 uh, and it was heard in 2020 in that case so i spent several years with amber um, she was put in the same invidious position that Erin Jean Norville was put in respect to the Rush case here in Australia, in that uh, the newspapers were reporting about the fact that she had got a restraining order against Johnny Depp. And a newspaper, the Sun newspaper wrote an op-ed about him being cast in J.K. Rowling's films and said, you know, why is she casting a known wife beater in her films? And he sued the newspaper. Now, Amber had gone to court, got a restraining order, signed an NDA and never given an interview about the detail of the violence that she suffered. She says that she suffered during their relationship. So I spent two years working with her. She took the decision to give evidence in that case. And I had very much in mind the experience of Erin Jean Norville here in Australia in the rush case. So I was very mindful to avoid the pitfalls that we saw happen in that case. And so we worked together to to prepare with the newspaper to prepare the defence. Uh, and a judge ruled in 2020 that he found it to be true that Depp had violently assaulted her on 12 separate occasions. Fast forward, then he sues her in the United States for an op-ed in which she doesn't name him. She describes herself as a survivor and a person who became a public figure as uh, associated with domestic violence, which is a fact. She went to court, got a restraining order, and and became a public figure around that issue. Uh, he sued her, and sadly, in the United States, he won. And in my opinion, that outcome is, is absurd. And the reason I find it to be absurd, and media lawyers who understand the law find it to be absurd, is that when he sued the Sun newspapers in London, it's a pro-claimant jurisdiction. The burden of proof was on the newspaper to prove her truth, and we succeeded in doing that. In the United States, the burden was on Depp, to prove that it didn't happen and that she had said it with malice. And for a jury to find the opposite of a, of an experienced judge in England is um, frankly, as I said, in my opinion, absurd. But what was so problematic is that uh, the Depp, Depp's lawyers ran um, what the Suns' lead counsel said were outdated and facile arguments, which were based on a 1960s um, sort of approach to domestic violence. Um, all the sexist tropes that were rolled out to discredit her in the UK and didn't work, sadly worked in front of a jury. And then we saw it propagated globally on social media. Um, I think it's devastating for women and it was devastating for me to have friends call me saying that their kids were absorbing these sexist tropes and myths about domestic violence through what they were seeing on TikTok. Uh, And I think it's done a huge damage to to efforts to resolve violence against women and address violence against women in our society,
0: mm, that is the piece of it. There is how it did proliferate through social media, particularly through TikTok, and it just gathered a life of its own. And I think a lot of us in certain circles may never have even witnessed or seen the worst of that. I'm sure to, you obviously both did, but that's you can think that that's not actually happening. You might not know, you may not even know that your kids are seeing that, but but they are, and, and it just became this running joke to people, which is particularly up, upsetting regarding all of this. Can I ask, I mean, this is to both of you as well, but Jen, it might, you might have certain take on this from your involvement there. And that is, I mean, I guess, you know, if we, when I think about the Amber Heard trial and I think about when we were covering that and some of the, um, comments that would come on our posts if it ended up in certain places and a lot of interesting reactions you must have experienced that yourself like did you sort of do, have you felt this sense of being silenced yourself in not so much by the law but rather through trolling or other avenues
2: well I certainly haven't been silenced by it because we rather a yeah. chapter about it in the book well, yeah which is from my <laughs> own perspective so I'm certainly not not uh, silence from speaking about my perspective about that case. But I, what I can say is that I have been relentlessly trolled because of my involvement in that case, because I represented her, because I stood with her and because together with the newspaper we proved that it was true that he had been violent towards her. So I think, you know, I've received all kinds of threats and I mean, the threats that I get have paled in comparison to what Amber has faced, death threats, rape threats, threats towards her small daughter. And this is all the ways in which, I mean, online violence against women is a form of violence against women and it often precipitates offline violence. And so it is concerning when you're receiving these kinds of threats online. Um, it is upsetting and this is all the ways in which we are attacked and told to stay out of public life and to get out of public spaces. And so if we are to better protect women both online and offline, we have to have better protections. And one of the things that really devastates me about about the case in, in the United States and the impact that I believe it's having and I hear anecdotally from colleagues it is having is how many more women are going to come forward and report and speak publicly about their experience of abuse if they heard their family members their friends their colleagues ridiculing and mocking Amber and saying the sorts of things we saw on social media about her what impact is that having on the people around you that you don't know have had an experience of abuse um, I think that people really need to reconsider that
0: mm. Given you've brought up the title of the book there, can I ask a question there in terms of, and I and I did see this come through in uh, certainly the conclusion of the book as well, is that question about how many more women. Maybe I could ask you just to explain how that title came about and and the questions that you're aiming yeah, to provoke. And
2: Well, I mean, look, we were looking for a title. We were really struggling with what we were going to call this book and we're on a call with our publisher and we were ranting about... <laughs> Our conversations and what we were learning, and and that that question came up all the time: How many more women need to be raped before we'll change this? How many more women will be sued for defamation before things things will change? How many more women need to accuse a man? <laughs> of abuse or harassment before we will believe her how many more women have to make accusations before a media organization will publish a story about this particular person the question came up so often and in so many different contexts it became like an exasperated refrain and so there we are that's how it ended up as the title of the book but it speaks to so many problems it speaks to the unfairness that women face in the courts the testimonial injustice we face we're not taken as seriously our testimony doesn't seem to count as much as a man's does. And so I really think that it's um, it's an apt title for what we talk about. And when you read the book, you'll see that question come up a lot. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah, okay. So... One kind of final thing, it's its sort of about your relationship and obviously studying as junior barristers and Jen, I can still picture you when I, I was in London, I can picture you there on um, the steps of Julian Assange and hearing you speak. And I was like, wow, this, um, this young dynamic Australian lawyer is there. And I was just so impressed and amazed at the time and have kind of followed you ever since. And I think both of you have done such high profile work and It's tough. It must have been so tough that whole time. So I just kind of wanted to ask about that, the relationship and the friendship that you've been able to form starting out together. I don't know if it was a male-dominated environment or not. I'm probably guessing it was. But how have you kind of leaned on each other and supported each other? And I guess, what would you say about the importance of those sorts of relationships that you can have with colleagues?
1: Well, I think we're both really lucky to be in a chambers where it is, I don't know if there's full gender parity, but it must be pretty close to it. So it's a space where there's a group even called Dowdy Street Women. And we have a big event every International Women's Day, which is, it's a really incredible event covering all sorts of issues. And um, so I think I feel very incredibly lucky in my career to have been mentored by um, incredible women. We we start off in the, in the book or in the English acknowledgements thanking Christine Chinkin and Hillary Charlesworth and and Helena Kennedy and you know who told us to go and write the book. We've we've been really lucky, I think, in having um, women mentor us as well. And and I think also the men in chambers have also been really supportive of us in our careers as well, which is fantastic.
2: Well, I guess in terms of, of our relationship too, I mean, the book is, I think, so much better because it's been the product of our conversations around these issues, which has helped to clarify our thinking. We bring different perspectives and different experience to the book, which I think you'll see, in terms of the stories that we tell and, and the global access that we've had because of the history of Kana's work with Women's Link International, Women's Link Worldwide. But also it's been, like for me, working with Kana has been a total joy because she's brilliant and has such an interesting background as an academic working in feminist legal thinking that that has really added, I think a, a it's brought a lot to the book. So I think it's a much better book because we did it together.
0: Mm-hmm. And now you're doing the book tour together, and uh, there's lots of great interviews, and there's lots of great um, uh, addresses that people will can be able to check out as well. So, um, well done, congratulations on the book. It is, I, I just our audience will just really love and appreciate this book, as I know many women and girls will. And to be able to get this understanding, and especially to be written in a way that is so accessible, which is can often be difficult with uh, the books about the law. So. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. It is a true honour and just thank you and congratulations on on all your work and all the support that you've done for women and girls as well. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so, so much. Good to talk to you. Thank you to Jen and Kana for sharing in this conversation. Their new book is How Many More Women and you can find it in all good bookstores. If this conversation did raise any issues for you or anyone you know, you can contact 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. You can also contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. The Women's Agenda podcast is published by Agenda Media, publisher of Women's Agenda, a daily news publication. You can subscribe to our lunchtime updates at womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. Thank you for listening.